one of the reasons this message is being taped is when I speak live, I tend to get off on tangents, and that's how messages get longer. But today, we can't afford that because we have so much to cover. Our title today is From Antichrist to Armageddon, and we need to keep it on the main highways, and I need to keep the pedal on the floor. I picked this title for three reasons. For one thing, From Antichrist to Armageddon is actually the duration of the tribulation. It begins with the coming of the fake Messiah, and it ends with the coming of the true Messiah, Jesus. And another reason why I picked this title is this is how the Bible lays it out. When we were last together, we saw a scene in heaven in Revelation chapter 5, where John is treated to a vision of heaven, and he sees Jesus opening a scroll with seven seals. And last week, we said that Jesus is basically going to bring this whole thing in for a landing, and when these seven years are finished, he is going to set up his kingdom on the earth. Well, let's go back to that scene for just a moment, because when you see the scroll in Jesus' hands, he is opening seven seals, and each seal represents a section or a judgment that's coming upon the earth. We understand that when all these seals have been broken, Satan's kingdom will be finished, And we read on this in Revelation chapter 6, and we see that these seals are seven judgments that have to come on the earth in the tribulation period. Now hang with me, because this is where it gets a little complicated. Really, these seals begin three sets of judgments. There are seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. It looks like there are 21 judgments that are coming on the earth, but there are only 19, and here's why. The seventh seal is actually the seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet is actually the seven bowls. So all of these judgments telescope in to the seal judgments. What's the point? I don't know, but I have an idea. Seven in the Bible is the number of completion, and three is the number of God. Well, three sets of seven judgments, three in one, that reminds us of the Trinity. But here's the major takeaway. When you look at these judgments, the first seal is the Antichrist coming on the scene, and the last bowl is Armageddon when Jesus comes to win the victory. So today, we're talking about from Antichrist to Armageddon. Now, here's my challenge. I need to show you Satan's agenda and God's activity. And sometimes those seem to happen at the same time. Satan is doing his work, but God is doing his work. Also, some of these things happen the entire seven years, and some of them only happen for the last three and a half years. You know, I've always gotten the idea that some of the stuff in Revelation would only be understood by the people who actually lived through those times. So some of this is going to be available to us, and other parts of it may be just a little bit cloudy, and I think the people who actually lived through those times will have an understanding that we don't have. But I'm going to try to give you an overview of what happens from the Antichrist until Armageddon. The first thing that I think is so important for us to understand, that in these seven years of tribulation, God is still going to bring many people to him in the tribulation. Right out of the box, that raises a question. Someone could ask, what if I miss the rapture and live into the tribulation? Will I still be able to be saved? Well, honestly, I don't know the answer to that. There's a verse in the book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that hints that people who have the opportunity to be saved during our time frame who live into the tribulation will not be able to be saved, but I don't really know the answer to that question. But hey, why not play it safe? Who wants to go through the tribulation anyway? 
But I would say this, if you happen to live through the rapture into the tribulation period, I sure wouldn't take the mark of the Antichrist. But here's something that really gets to the point of God's work in the tribulation period. In the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, God basically worked through Israel. That doesn't mean that only Jews could be saved, but Israel was the agency through which God worked. Today, we live in the church age, and God works through the church, which doesn't mean that people from Israel can't be saved. It just means that God works primarily through the church. But in the tribulation period, God is going to return back to working through the nation of Israel. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at a prophecy that God gave to Daniel about the tribulation period. Remember the 70 sets of seven that we worked through? In Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, God said to Daniel, 70 sets of seven, 490 years, has been decreed for your people and your holy city. In that message, we saw that there was one set of seven that are still left to be fulfilled. And that's the tribulation period. And in that time frame, God is going to work, and he's going to bring millions of people to salvation. But instead of working through the church like he does today, he's going to return back to working through the nation of Israel. And not only is he going to work through the nation of Israel, but many in Israel are going to turn to him. In the Old Testament, we read about prophets. And in the tribulation period, there are two very special prophets we read about that sometimes we call the two witnesses. This is in Revelation chapter 11 in the third verse where the Bible says, I will provide my two witnesses. They will prophesy for 1,260 days, which is roughly three and a half years or half of the tribulation. Now we read what happens in verse five if anyone tries to impede these two witnesses from giving out the message God wants them to give. The Bible says, if anyone tries to hurt them, a blast of fire from their mouths will incinerate them, burn them to a crisp just like that. Look at this. They will have the power to seal the sky so it doesn't rain for the time of their prophesying and the power to turn rivers and springs into blood. Well, who are these two witnesses? Through the years, Bible scholars have tried to think about who they might be. For one thing, they could just be two prophets that God raises up during the tribulation period. Or there are a couple of clues that it could be the return of a couple of prophets who ministered back in the Old Testament. When we read about withholding rain from the sky, we think about Elijah because God gave him the ability to do that. When we think about turning rivers to blood, we think about Moses because that was one of the plagues and God used Moses to do that. So is this Elijah and Moses coming back? We don't know. Interestingly, when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, who showed up with him? Elijah and Moses. Well, again, I don't know who these two prophets are, but I have to say this. They are going to be very influential. Satan and his agenda will not be able to stop them. And I believe it is through their witness that many are going to be brought to Christ. Now, what I do notice about this is that these two prophets provide a counterbalance to the Antichrist regime and Satan's power. They are going to be effective preachers, and you can imagine how much Satan and his agenda are going to hate them. In fact, we read about what happens ultimately to these two witnesses in the book of Revelation chapter 11 and verse 7. The Bible said when they've completed their witness, in other words, when they have done the job that God put them on the earth to do, the beast, that's always a reference to the Antichrist, the beast will conquer and kill them, leaving their corpses exposed in the street of that great city, the same city where their master was crucified. Evidently, this will be Jerusalem. 
For three and a half days, they'll be there, lying in the streets, exposed, prevented from getting a decent burial, stared at by the curious from all over the world. Time out. Do you remember week one when we said there are prophecies in the Bible that could only be fulfilled in our time frame? Well, this is one of them, because the Bible states that people from all over the world will watch the corpses of these two prophets lying in the streets. Well, if it wasn't for the technology of our day, what John wrote about 2,000 years would not even be remotely possible. Well, verse 10, those people will cheer at the spectacle, shouting, good riddance, and calling for a celebration. In fact, some translations indicate people will exchange gifts like they do at Christmas because these two witnesses are dead. Well, the Bible says it'll be because these two prophets pricked the conscience of all the people on the earth and made it impossible to enjoy their sins. Verse 11, then after three and a half days, the living spirit of God will enter them. They're on their feet and all these gloating spectators will be scared to death. Wow, that's going to be something to see. But the main point I want to get across is that even during the tribulation period, God is going to put his preachers on the earth, not necessarily like we see in the church age, but like we saw the prophets in the Old Testament. But hey, that's just for starters. They will only be part of God's evangelistic plan during the tribulation period. The Bible also tells us in Revelation about the 144,000 witnesses. This is a mysterious group. We don't know a whole lot about them. We just know that these are witnesses who go throughout the earth to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Also, they, like the two prophets, are protected by God and kept from being harmed as long as they do their job. One of the best explanations I've heard as to who these 144,000 are is to say they are like 144,000 unstoppable Jewish Billy Grahams. We do know they're Jewish because the Bible speaks of 12,000 coming from the 12 tribes of Israel. You know, as I was a kid growing up and I heard preachers preach on prophecy, one of the things that I heard over and over is that the Jewish people would accept the Antichrist as the Messiah. That's at least partially flawed because many will not accept the Antichrist. We see that through the ministry of these two prophets and the 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams. There will be many Jewish people who will quickly in the tribulation come to know that Jesus is the Messiah. You know, as I've come to know many Jewish friends, I've, I've become aware that there are many Jewish people who are devout in their study of the Scriptures. Many years ago, I had lunch with a rabbi. He was a wonderful guy. He had actually fought as an American Marine in World War II and fought in the Six-Day War in Israel. By the time I met him, he was elderly. I'll tell you what I remember about him is that not only did he know the Old Testament, he knew the New Testament about as well as I know it. In fact, he made a comment about me to a mutual friend that I think is my favorite compliment of all time. After I left his synagogue, he turned to our mutual friend and said, I've known many people who talked about Jesus Christ, but that man knows him. Well, one thing I've discovered through the years is that many Jewish people seriously, seriously study the Word of God. And remember this, the only thing that really separates the Jewish faith from the Christian faith is those of us who believe in Jesus believe that He is the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament who has already come. And many in the Jewish faith believe that the Messiah has not come yet. 
Well, I am convinced that early in the tribulation, there will be many Jewish people who will come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and they will have a powerful influence throughout the tribulation period. Now, this is just conjecture on my part, but I think as I study the book of Revelation, I have pretty sound basis for suggesting this. Do you remember studying in the book of Acts chapter 2 how that at the beginning of the church age, the Holy Spirit came and energized the church with an explosive effect? Well, I really believe God is going to do something like that at the beginning of the tribulation as he turns again to the old covenant and works through Israel. And I think that many Jewish people are going to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And throughout the tribulation period, not only will many Jewish people be saved, but through their witness, many Gentiles will be saved as well. Hey, isn't that just like our God, that in earth's darkest hour when Satan's agenda is running nuts, millions are still coming to Jesus Christ? So that's the first thing that I want us to understand, that even in the dark times of Satan's agenda, many, many millions of people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. You know, before we can understand Satan's agenda, there's one important thing that we've got to talk about. You actually have an attribute Satan doesn't have. He's very powerful, but you can do something he can't do. You can create. Do you know why? Because you're made in the image of God, and God is a creator. But Satan, he can't create anything. Satan is a copycat. Have you ever noticed that he only has two tunes on his playlist? He can either be the opposite of God, or he can come up with an evil copy or substitute for what God has made. For instance, Satan likes to substitute lust for love, greed for financial peace, cheap thrills for satisfaction, and on and on it goes. Whatever God makes that's good, Satan always has a cheap, inferior substitute. But the tribulation will be his masterpiece. What you discover in the book of Revelation is that he tries to copy, in an evil way, the Trinity. We know the Trinity. It's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Satan, of course, can't create that, but he wants to be God, and so consequently, he will have his Savior, the Antichrist, and he will actually have the leader of his false religion that the Bible calls the false prophet. So it's not the Trinity. It's nowhere close to what the real Trinity is, but Satan is going to try to copycat that during the tribulation. He wants to be in the position of God, put his Antichrist, false Messiah, which is what Antichrist means, in the place of the true Savior, and bring in the false prophet in the place of the Holy Spirit. But not only will he try to copy the Trinity, he ultimately will attempt to come up with his own version of worship and salvation. Of course, the false Christ is the Antichrist. Ultimately, Satan wants to be worshipped through that false Christ, Antichrist. And he has his own system of worship led by the false prophet. And he will actually attempt to come up with his own outward demonstration of his religion. You know, we today have baptism. We know that baptism doesn't save us, but it's an outward, tangible symbol of our faith in Jesus Christ. Well, Satan in his toxic, counterfeit religion will have an outward symbol of worship of him, and that will be taking the mark that we read about in the book of Revelation of 666. But here's a really important thing. Satan doesn't come up with his worship system at the beginning of the tribulation. It's very important to understand that Satan's agenda changes in the middle of the seven years. For instance, you may have heard of the one world government, the one world economic system, and the one world religion of the tribulation, but all of that comes 
in the second half, in the last three and a half years. Whatever Satan's issues are, he's smart, and he doesn't show his hand at first. Now, although the Antichrist isn't the world leader at the beginning of the tribulation, he does have a specific power base. In Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, Scripture indicates that he will be a leader of a European confederation of nations. So how does a leader of a European confederation become looked at as the world leader? I think the answer is in Ezekiel chapters 37 through 39. Because we read about a last day invasion of Israel that happens, I'm convinced, at the beginning of the tribulation period. That invasion is spearheaded by a couple of nations, Russia and Iran. Hey, we see that heating up today. Now, the strange thing about that invasion is that it's stopped, it's quelled, it's defeated. And God is the one who defeats this invasion force, but it appears to me that the Antichrist takes credit for it. Now, when that invasion is quelled, I think it's going to basically deal with the problem that we know of today as radical Islam. And from that point on, hey, what's to stop peace from happening? Because at that point, the Bible teaches us that the Antichrist, that leader, will actually broker a treaty between Israel and its enemies. We read this in Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. The Bible says the king, that's the Antichrist, will make a seven-year treaty with the people. That's the people of Israel. But after half that time, three and a half years, he will break his pledge and stop the Jews from their sacrifices and their offerings. Then as a climax to his terrible deeds, the enemy shall utterly defile the sanctuary of God. But in God's time and plan, his judgment will be poured out on the evil one. Now we saw in that verse what we've been talking about. The first half of the tribulation seems to be a time of geopolitical peace, and the last half of the tribulation, the Antichrist will reveal who he really is and turn on Israel. But I do believe that that's how, at the beginning of the tribulation, he's just a European leader, and by the middle of the tribulation, he is the ruler of the one world government and the one world system. You know, all of this raises a question that I've been asked many times throughout the years, and that is, Mark, do you see the United States in prophecy? Well, truthfully, I don't, and many other scholars don't as well. And there have been various reasons suggested as to why that's the case. For instance, there have been those who said something may happen and it may not exist anymore. And then there have been those who said, well, God is very gracious. Perhaps the outcome is yet to be determined based on the choices Americans made. But I have a belief and a thought about that that I'd share with you. And again, this is just my thought. But I think the United States is going to be a very different country five minutes after the rapture. And my guess, and it's only a guess... But my guess is that the United States will align themselves with this European confederation. Now, during this first three and a half years, Satan's good-looking leader won't just seem to have geopolitical peace figured out. He's also going to be an economic genius. Remember now, it's not the one-world government or the one-world religion or one-world economy yet. The Antichrist is just leading the world by influence. But halfway through the tribulation, Satan takes off the mask and gloves and you'd never believe what he uses to bring this European leader to world leadership prominence. Or maybe you would believe. It's an assassination attempt. In Revelation 13, verse 3, the Bible says the beast, the Antichrist, seemed wounded beyond recovery, but the fatal wound was healed. The whole world marveled at this miracle and gave allegiance to the beast, the Antichrist. They worshiped the dragon. That's a term that means Satan. They worship the dragon for giving the beast, the Antichrist, such power, and they also worship the beast, 
Who is as great as the beast, they exclaim, and who is able to fight against him? Verse 5 says, Then the beast was allowed to speak great blasphemies against God, and he was given authority to do whatever he wanted for 42 months, the last three and a half years of the tribulation. And he spoke terrible words of blasphemy against God, slandering his name in his temple, that is, those who live in heaven. And the beast was allowed to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And he was given authority to rule over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all the people who belong to this world worship the beast. They are the ones whose names were not written in the book of life. Did you feel that change? In the first three and a half years, he is this beautiful world-class leader who seems to figure out all the geopolitical struggles and the economic problems of the world. But halfway through, Satan brings him to prominence as the leader, the God of this world. And people worship the Antichrist and they worship Satan for giving the Antichrist his power. Now that's when the one world government, the one world religion, and the one world economy comes in. We read about this one world system in the book of Revelation chapter 13, and we recognize what people have to do to belong to it. Revelation chapter 13 verse 16 says this about the Antichrist. He required everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be given a mark on the right hand or the forehead. And no one could buy or sell anything without that mark, which was either the name of the beast or the number representing his name. Before we go to verse 18, remember I said at the beginning of this talk, I think there are elements of the book of Revelation that are meant for the people who are living through it in real time. I think this is one of those scriptures. Look at verse 18. Wisdom is needed here. Let the one with understanding solve the meaning of the number of the beast, for it's the number of a man. His number is 666. Well, back when John wrote this 2,000 years ago, I'm guessing that the people of his time figured it was some sort of tattoo or marking on the hand or forehead. But of course, with the technology of the day, we have understood for years that there would be a possible scenario where one could have some kind of chip or implant or information-loaded tattoo that could actually allow someone to purchase something or to sell something. I don't know what it's ultimately going to be. Who can tell where technology is going to be in a year, five years, or ten years? What we do know is this, is that this process will actually determine whether a person is allowed to buy the very basic necessities of life or to conduct business, which by extension would mean to have a career. You know, one of the things that stands out to me about all this, it's not so much the 666 and what the technology is. It just reminds me that what Satan has always wanted is control. Isn't that what he wanted when he rebelled against God? He wanted control of the world. He wanted control of the angels who sided with him. And when he talked to Adam and Eve, what did he tell them they could have? He told them they could have power, but ultimately he wanted to control them. Remember when Satan tempted Jesus? What did he say? If you bow down and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. But, of course, the truth is if Jesus had worshipped Satan, Satan would have had control. I always find this interesting that wherever God is, God wants to give us freedom. There's a verse in the New Testament that says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. True freedom is in knowing God. And yet Satan, whenever we buy into his agenda, what do we experience? Control. I mean, we see that with some of the temptations that Satan uses today. He tells people that, hey, you need to break out and enjoy the freedom of alcohol. Well, I know there are some who use it responsibly, but isn't it true that for many it becomes control? Same thing with drugs. 
Same thing with illicit sex. And we see people that have all kinds of addictions today. I'm not talking about those things specifically. I'm just making the point that wherever Satan is, he wants to exert control. And that's what the whole tribulation is about. He wants to control the world. And he will use this economic system of the mark, 666, to attempt to control the whole world and everything that goes on. Well, as we look at this agenda of Satan, which now we're into the second three and a half years. It started with his world-class leader coming on the stage, seemingly solving the economic problems and the geopolitical problems of the world. We've seen that morph into a system where he becomes the world ruler, the world leader, a one-world government, one-world economy, one-world religion, where not only the Antichrist is worshiped, but Satan is worshiped. So what happens to all this? Well, Satan's not God, and he can't sustain anything. When you read the book of Revelation, at the end of the second three and a half years, at the end of the seven-year tribulation, it all just collapses. Well, part of the reason why it all falls apart is Satan's stupidity. Evil just never succeeds. But it's also a result of God pouring out his cataclysmic judgments on the world that put pressure on Satan's government and his economic and religious systems. But here's the thing. It all just falls apart. You know, economy drives everything, doesn't it? And the economy that Satan brings about in the last days, which seems to be a success at first, like all Ponzi schemes, it collapses, and it collapses suddenly in a matter of minutes. This one-world system of economics and government and religion, the Bible calls Babylon. Interestingly in Scripture, Babylon has always been the antitype for Jerusalem. Babylon has always been Satan's government, and God uses that terminology to identify Satan's system in the last days. Now, we read about the collapse of Satan's system in the book of Revelation chapter 18 in the ninth verse. The Bible says, "...the kings of the world who committed adultery with her," that's Babylon, "...and enjoyed her great luxury, will mourn for her as they see the smoke rising from her charred remains. They will stand at a distance, terrified by the great torment, and they will cry out, "'How terrible, how terrible for you, O Babylon!' Remember, that's Satan's system. "'O Babylon, you great city, for in a single moment God's judgment has come upon you.'" Now, look at the collapse of the economic system in verse 11. The merchants of the world will weep and mourn for her, for there is no one left to buy their goods. Wow. Satan's grand scheme of ruling the world will fall apart at the end of the tribulation, and everyone who bought into it is going to stand around and grieve because it's all collapsed. You know, it makes sense to me. Because in our world today, and over the last hundred years especially, we have watched as different economic systems have risen to strength and then collapsed. But what we've watched is there are other economic systems in the world that act as a tow truck to bring the world's economy out of the ditch. But if all of the eggs are in one basket, if all of the world's economy is in one system, if it collapses, that's the end. Finally, we see God's three sets of judgments because while God is bringing many to faith and Satan is performing his agenda of one world government, God is judging the world. And we saw at the beginning of the talk that there are three sets of judgments, seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. Well, those deserve explanation on their own. But today, we're just going to do a quick flyover and look at what these judgments are and how they come upon the earth. 
Let's start with the seal judgments, beginning in Revelation chapter 6. Seal number one is the Antichrist comes on the scene. Seal number two is some kind of war. I think it's the war that we read about in Ezekiel 37 through 39. After the war, there is a famine or a shortage of food. And the fourth seal is widespread death, which I think comes about as a result of seals two and three. Seal number five is martyrs because all these things that are happening are going to be blamed on God followers, and we've seen that there will be many who will come to Christ during the tribulation. Seal number six is a massive earthquake, and seal number seven, the seven trumpets. The first trumpet carries all the characteristics of a possible nuclear detonation. In fact, Scripture tells us that in this judgment, one-third of the earth is scorched. The second trumpet is the fouling of the oceans. The third trumpet seems to be a meteor or an asteroid strike. And the fourth trumpet is the affectation of daylight, probably from a massive dust cloud as a result of the meteor or asteroid strikes. The fifth trumpet is extremely virulent demons that are released. Scripture tends to indicate that some of the demons, the angels who rebelled against God at the beginning, were so awful that God put them in chains from the very beginning. And when the fifth trumpet is sounded, God releases these awful demons to do damage on the earth. The sixth trumpet are plagues. Now, the strange thing about these judgments that are coming on the earth is spelled out for us in the book of Revelation chapter 9 and verse 20. You, you would think that with all these judgments coming on the earth that people would realize their sin and turn to God and ask for mercy. But in Revelation 9 verse 20, here's what the Bible says after the sixth trumpet, these plagues that are released on the earth. The Bible says, but the people who did not die in these plagues still refused to repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. They continued to worship demons. The seventh trumpet are the seven bowls, and these are the final judgments that are going to come on the earth. The first bowl judgment is skin lesions on those who accepted the mark of the beast. The second bowl is what's left of the oceans is polluted. The third bowl is the fresh water is fouled. The fourth bowl is a heat that scorches. The fifth bowl is darkness. And the sixth bowl, well, this one deserves a little bit of conversation. It just says the pathway is cleared for Armageddon. The Euphrates is basically the border between the Eastern world and the Holy Land. And Scripture at this point tells us about an army from the East of 200 million soldiers. I don't know for sure who this army is or what nation it represents, but I do know this. There is one nation in the world that actually could field an army of 200 million soldiers, and that's China. You know what's significant about all that? When John wrote this prophecy given to him by God in Revelation, there weren't 200 million people on the planet, and yet he speaks of a last day's army of 200 million people. Well, in any event, in the sixth bowl judgment, God is clearing the way for Armageddon to happen and all the nations to gather together against Israel. The seventh and the final bowl judgment is Armageddon itself. We read about this in Revelation 16, 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a mighty shout came from the throne of the temple saying, it's finished. So what's Armageddon about? It is God saying, we're done here. It's time for the Messiah to come. But also we see Satan having an agenda. His kingdom is finished. His economic system is in tatters and ruins. His government has failed, but he's going to go out in a blaze of glory. He has one final thing that he wants to do to basically flip God off. He hates Israel, and he wants to destroy Israel. So he has brought 
all the armies of the world together with one purpose, which is to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. Well, in Revelation chapter 16 and verse 16, we read about it. And the demon spirits gathered all the rulers and their armies to a place with the Hebrew name Armageddon. So can you get this picture in your mind? Satan's agenda is basically finished. One final blow that he wants to strike against God before he's judged. He brings all the armies of the world together situated against Israel in this valley of Megiddo to one final time wipe Israel off the face of the earth. So what's going to happen next? Well, I get chills when I read this. In Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21, one more time, get the picture in your head. All the world's armies, one army, 200 million strong, gathered together around Israel to wipe it off the face of the earth. I'm sure the people of Israel at that point are thinking, wow, what hope do we have? Revelation 19, 11, then I saw heaven open and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood and his title was the word of God. The armies of heaven, hey, that's us. We got taken to heaven seven years before. The armies of heaven dressed in the finest of pure white linen followed him out on white horses. From his mouth there came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God the Almighty like juice flowing from a wine press. On his robe, at his thigh, was written this title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Wow. That's how it's all going to finish up. Satan and his armies are vanquished. And not by some sort of military thing, just the word of God. Hey, do you remember how this all started at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1? God spoke and the worlds came into existence. When Jesus rides out of heaven, the armies of this earth, regardless of how many millions there are of them, or billions for that matter, it won't matter. Jesus will simply speak and that's it. But I want you to understand, it's not the end. It's actually the beginning. Because when Jesus comes, he is going to ride down to the earth into Jerusalem, and he is going to start a kingdom that you and I are going to be part of. And for once and forever, this world will get to know what it would be like to have God as the God of this earth, owned and in full possession of this world system without Satan and without his evil in the world. Man, I'm looking forward to that. Well, I know this had to be like drinking from a fire hose, but I wanted to give you an overview of what happens in the tribulation from Antichrist to Armageddon. I have to ask you this question. Do you know for sure that Jesus is your Savior, this coming King? Have you ever invited Him to become your Savior today? You know, when I read about Him coming to become King of this earth, that's beautiful to think about, but He's already my King there was a moment when I invited him into my life to be my Savior and King. And from that moment on, I was part of his kingdom. And I know that many of you watching today, whether you're in the campus or you're watching online or on television, you've already made that decision. But I just want to reach out to anyone here or watching today who would say, Mark, I'm not really sure that I'm part of his kingdom. Well, you can be. You just simply have to desire to be part of his kingdom. The Bible tells us it happens by believing in John 3, 16, the Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And today, if you're willing to believe that Jesus died for your sins and believe that he arose from the grave, if you're willing to trust him as your Savior and King, 
You can be transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred into his kingdom forever. The Bible says whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And today you can call on him and he's listening for you. You know, I was thinking about this as I got ready for the message. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now, when he goes back that second time, he's not going to stand at the door and knock. He's coming to take charge. But today, he's knocking on the door of your heart, and he wants to come in. You don't have to talk him into it. He wants to come into your life. He wants to be your Savior and King. And if you want to receive him, you can simply pray to God to have Jesus as your king. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. These aren't magic words, but these are words that do call out to God. And if you mean them, God will hear your prayer. I'll pray them slowly so you can decide if you want to pray these words. You ready? Dear God, I am a sinner. I'm flawed. I'm broken. And I can't fix myself. But I believe you love me. I believe you want me to be part of your family. I believe Jesus came the first time and died for my sin. I believe he arose from the grave. I believe he's alive. And I believe he's coming again. Would you make me your child? Thank you for forgiving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you just prayed this prayer, I have a gift I want to give you. It's a box I prepared that's got a Bible like I preach from, a book I wrote, and some cool stuff. And all you have to do is go to any info center and say, I prayed with Mark this morning, and they'll give it to you. They don't want to hassle you or bother you in any way. They just want you to have these resources so that you can start off your new life with Jesus in a cool and powerful way. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next weekend.